Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are starting out the new year where we left off the old year rereading one of our favourite novels, one of the Aubrey Matchery novels of Patrick O'Brien. And of course, it's The Wine Dark Sea. Mike, get us back up to speed, would you? Please tell us where we were in The Wine Dark Sea last time and where we're headed to this week. I would love to, Ian. Thank you. Yeah, last week in Chapter 4, Detourd was put out that he couldn't speak with Captain on the quarterdeck and further put out when the Franklin's pirated money was taken from him. Now, Stephen caught Martin dosing himself for venereal disease and lying about it. Martin went out of his way to insult Stephen twice. Stephen realized that Martin believes he has the pox. There were possible light and dark and water and salt metaphors as the lack of fresh water led to badly chafing clothing, especially for Martin. And just after Jack had divided the Franklin spoils with the crew at the end of the chapter, an object was spotted in the water. Now, this time in chapter five, we learn more about the object in the sea and where it leads to the surprise as we sail full speed into examining human thinking and behavior, pursuing prizes, and finding danger nautically and interpersonally. Mm-hmm. We learn a little physics, a connection to Ben Franklin, some more Latin, and unwrap a language, gender, and agency Easter egg. Oh, that's the kind of Easter egg we all like to find, right, Mike? <laughs> Absolutely. Very good. Thank you so much. Well, as as we open the chapter here, we'd, we'd seen this barrel and we get this nice little comic scene as a couple of members of the crew take each other to task a little bit about who knows best what this barrel is and where it came from. The whalers identify it as belonging to a New England, or as they call it, a Yankee whaler that had been a couple of days in the water, probably from a homeward bound boat with a full hold, a little bit of kind of you know, salt beef barrel CSI going on here with a forensic examination of the barrel. The crew take this as great news. They nudge and grin at each other. This means a prize in the offing. Meanwhile, everyone's studying the sea. They're studying the set of the breeze. They're studying the current, as is their captain, Jack Aubrey. Everybody that is to say, except for Stephen Maturin, who's watching seabirds as they fly east-southeast, which is in the direction of Peru, where we're headed. And we have Martin and Monsieur Dutour watching the sailors' profoundly serious concentration, as they describe it, on this potential as-yet-unseen prize. Stephen starts to offer his bird-watching telescope to Martin, remembering that he and Martin had some pretty harsh words for each other last chapter. A little reaching out here. Stephen offers his bird-watching telescope to Martin, but doesn't, as he overhears this remark that Martin makes to Dutour. Homo hominus lupus now mike the 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 translation of this i gather means uh, man is a wolf to another man meaning that man is more like an animal than civilized when he's dealing with other men what do we think about that what's going on in stephen's mind there what do you think is going on in o'brien's mind well you know it's interesting yeah i'll I'll tell you what's going on in my mind first is i I think the saying does great injustice to the entire dog or canid family yeah so (laughs) you know and and i think you know it's fascinating i think there's this irony that that 
O'Brien is pointing out again. We know Martin is, you know, is just all a gag. He loves prize money. Yeah. But here he is making this comment to Detoured. And we know Detoured, he got his nose pretty out of joint over having yeah. his money taken from him, his prize money. So, you know, this is a real contrast between, as, as you know, as some say, the theory in use and the espouse theory here between Martin and Detoured, you know, kind of taking their feelings, which they have about prize money, sort of projecting them onto the crew here and then condemning the crew for having those feelings while feeling all bold to be able to do it in Latin. Yeah. What's the Latin for hypocrisy, do you think? There you go. Well done. I love it. We'll have to check in with Karen, our consulting Latinist. Indeed, indeed. Well, this leaves a fairly kind of nasty image in my mind. And I know that this this idea, this Latin tag has been kind of talked about and there have been paintings and pictures about it, which you might share some of on our socials as we get through the week here. But meanwhile, um, Jack and Tom go into prize hunting mode. They go to patrol kind of formation here. They spread out the surprise and the Franklin as they sweep for this whaler. All the crew members are watching out there with great hopes, even though all they've got to go on is this barrel and some of their knowledge of South Seas whalers. They also have the presence of the birds that we've seen flying overhead, which are uncommon in these blue waters. So that means that altogether, there's really only a remote chance of finding this whaler in this immense ocean. The text says here, the chief basis of this hope was a fervent desire that it should be fulfilled. And maybe that's a pretty good definition for a hope, right? Like, <laughs> that their hope, such as it is, is sinking minute by minute as it gets dark until just as darkness descends, from aboard the surprise, we see a blue flare going up from the Franklin and a lantern signal for the five-letter telegraphic word K-R-E-N-G, Krang. And I'm, I'm with Reed on this, Mike. I had no idea what Krang was the first time I read it. I'm reading it, rereading it here for like the fifth time, and I still can't remember what a Krang is. So we get a nice explanation from the crewman. Uh, a Krang is what whalers call a whale carcass, with its head emptied of spermaceti and the blubber all stripped off, which is a pretty grim thing. But you can imagine that that's what you find when you're close in the wake of somebody that's been uh, that's been hunting and processing whales here. You know, I, I love it. So you know, there's this Krang, and um, eventually the surprise following the Franklin gets to this dead whale. And Granger tells Stephen all about whales, adds that, you know, he had seen Martin throwing up over the side earlier and, and actually throwing up into the wind and blowing back on him, and that he went below looking very sick. Now, in the morning, Martin seems, you know, reasonably well, even though the ship is pitching even harder than it was the night before. So Stephen had thought maybe it was the motion of the ship, but that doesn't seem to be it. Now they hear sail ho from the masthead and Martin exclaims, we found them. So, you know, here we are back to this irony of, you know, man are, uh, are wolves to other men now. You know, here's, here's wolfish Martin in contrast to his, you know, usual habitual anxious and withdrawn cheerless expression here. Yeah. So, as you said, in pot meat kettle in Latin or word for hypocrisy, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, we also get this nice juxtaposition with a real live, a, a non-hunted, a non-slaughtered whale. Jack shows Stephen a sperm whale that's jumping and diving and being pursued by boats from the whaler. So we get the, the first part of the story of the, uh, of the whale hunting being told out for us here. This whaler has killed two whales now and is tied fast to a third and is emptying her out. 
Two other boats are towing one of the dead whales to the ship. The panicked whaler has seen the surprise, but the boats that are out on the water doing the whaling have not yet seen the surprise. And this is starting to cause some disarray here. Granger thinks that the ship will give them a gun to hurry them on in. The master here beats the crew to get a gun clear, ready for action. And Stephen wonders why the man in the crow's nest is urging the whaler to go away to the right. And he has the answer here from Granger, who points out that Franklin is down there wearing American colors and the boat no doubt recognizes her as the privateer that she used to be. And thinks that if they head over uh, under the lee of the Franklin, they can get protection from the British surprise. But of course, this is all part of Jack Aubrey's ruse de guerre. The Franklin is under British control. The crew then stops trying to get the cannon out. They head for the sails to make a run for it. And the boats are finally cottoned onto what's happening. They drop their whale. They race back to catch the ship. And there's this really nasty, really cold, chilling moment explained again for us by Granger here, who says there are no wages on a whaler. Everyone that makes it back home shares in the profits. So the fewer men that come home, the more the survivors gain. So there's an incentive here on the people who are still aboard the whaler to make off and leave their colleagues in the boats for dead. Now, the men on the first two boats do make it. They get aboard, they help raise the sails, and they speed off towards the Franklin. Now, here we see the you know the self-preservation instinct where the men are turning perhaps a little into wolves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. So the surprise pauses to take in the other set of boats, You know, they, the ones that were much further away. They pick them up, get them in tow. And when the whaler is within pistol shot of the Franklin, Tom hoists the ensign, fires a ball across the whaler's forefoot and orders her to strike her colors and come under his lee. He then waits and lets Jack take her as the prize. So, you know, good old Tom Bullings. It's wonderful. Jack sends Granger to take possession and Stephen rides along with him. Always wanted to see the inside of a whaler, what this looks like here. Now, Jack has the whaler dump several barrels of oil beside the ship to calm the waters. And we'll come back to that. O'Brien writes, the sea did not cease heaving but the spray no longer flew and there was no white water, no breaking between the ships, nor a way to leeward. So this oil kind of calms the sea. And this is, I'm, I'm like, get out of here. Is this a real thing? It is indeed a real thing. Um, there's this famous phrase to pour oil on troubled waters. And yeah, it would be easy to hear that and imagine it's just kind of a metaphor, but it is a real thing. Um, this was mandatory on steamships of the US and the UK and lifeboats of those countries until the end of the 20th century. The mandatory to have the ability to pour oil on the waters because you make the surface of the water more viscous and, as you might say, heavier, and it reduces the steepness and the violence of the seas. Ben Franklin, our friend that you mentioned at the beginning there, Mike, uh, Ben Franklin heard of the practice in the UK, experimented with it, and reported its success to the Royal Society on June 2nd, 1774. So... This is uh, right in the wheelhouse of when this technique was kind of being discovered and talked about in navies on both sides of the Atlantic here. Ben Franklin also used it for practical jokes with oil in his cane, calming the water like Moses. The oil, as, as we know, kind of now takes the energy out of waves and stops them uh, crashing. The oil molecules, of course, are lighter than water, so they float onto the surface and the viscosity of the oil and the weight of the oil makes it harder for the wind to break the crests up. The swell, the underlying size of the waves, stays the same, but what it does is it reduces the short chop and it reduces the, the breaking of the crests on the top there. makes it much easier to handle small boats and easy to handle lifeboats and do rescue operations and stuff. 
If you're skeptical, you can try this. Drop a few drops of vegetable oil into a puddle on a windy day and see what difference there is. And obviously do this with due regard for the environment and take care about why you dispose of your vegetable oil products. But it's a real thing. We can, we might even get the chance, Mike, to put some video out there so people can see this happening for real. Perfect. Thanks, Ian. I, I, I love that. Well, by the time they get Stephen up the slippery side of the whaler, the men on the remaining boats come aboard and are not happy about being left to starve or be captured out there by the master. You know, a number of them are shouting at this master. But as they're shouting, you know, the harpooner that Stephen had seen earlier with Granger, a man of very few words, makes his way through the crowd and, as O'Brien writes, flung his iron straight through the master's breast deep into the wood. So, boom, wow. the uh, the master, the head of the Yankee whaler, is now dead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, more, more wolf-like behavior from one man to another and the rewards for it. <laughs> Stephen heads back to the surprise and learns that Martin has taken ill. But Martin really won't let Stephen treat him at all. He keeps telling him it's just a passing indisposition requiring rest and quiet. So as Stephen is checking on Martin, Jack, Tom, and Mr. Adams are checking the whaler's hands against the whaler's muster book and trying to decide, you know, how do we divide them up, you know, make them part of our crew here. Now, many of the American crew had died during this three-year cruise and had been replaced with locals and foreigners. Now, there's one former seaman from Hennage Dundas' ship back in Jack's days on the Sophie. He volunteers to be a surprise and tells you know the three of them about a French black-flagged pirate, so a privateer who's also flying the Jolly Roger, yeah. who's close by waiting to set upon an English merchant ship about to come out of port and return home. Jack wants to know all about this pirate. So here's, here's another potential prize, and he certainly wants to make sure that this English shipping is not disrupted. And he learns that you know, the pirate has 32 nine or perhaps 12 pounders, all brass, as well as chasers. Mm, so she's similar in numbers of guns, if not the same weight of metal as a surprise. So she's not an absolute slam dunk, is she going to be? So Jack is clearly gathering his thoughts and his resources to take care of the situation. He sends for Mr. Vidal and assigns him to take command of the whaler with some of their key people and also some people from the surprise. He wants her to sail into Calau while they run down this Frenchman. They say that they're going to hopefully catch up with him, uh, but he gives Vidal the name of Jack's prize agent in port there. He wants to get as much water across as they can in 30 minutes before the ships part. He says to Vidal, he should spare no oil in calming the sea, as they've already been doing here, to make that happen. So this theme of oil and water um, is going to be important for us. We, we go back to the, to the metaphorical world of water now as we go back below. Stephen asks Jack that evening for fresh water to sponge his patients. And we've heard already about the effect that salt water washed clothing has on fragile human skin. He asks for this fresh water to sponge the patients and also to wash their clothes. Jack provides the water, but tells Stephen to wait a while. He says, wait for the coming rain for washing clothes, because what washes off the rigging might not be very palatable to drink, but will for sure be perfectly good enough for washing clothes. 
Now, Stephen's a little bit upset that he hasn't been kept completely up to date with what's going on. He doesn't understand why they're now quickly sailing away from Peru with a bunch of strange sailors aboard. And he says Jack had led him very confidently to believe that he'd be in Peru before Bridie's birthday. That's his daughter's birthday. And Jack, with a little bit of a twinkle in his eye, I think he says, well, you didn't tell me which birthday. Um, and Stephen is in turn upset by this rather lighthearted attitude that Jack is taking. A classic Jack and Stephen conversation now follows. Tell me, brother, this is Jack to Stephen. Has nobody told you what is afoot? They have not. Where have you been? Stephen says, I've been in my cabin downstairs contemplating on Mercury, which, of course, is a reference to what's been going on with Nathaniel Dursing himself. Jack comes back in here. He says, a delightful occupation, but he is not to be seen now, you know. He's too near the sun. And to tell you the truth, he is neither much of a spectacle nor a great help in navigation, although charming from the purely astronomical point of view. I meant the metallic element in its pure state. Quicksilver is perfectly neutral. You may swallow half a pint without harm, but in its various combinations, it is sometimes benign. Where would you portly men be without the blue pill? We'll find out what he means by blue pill in a second. And sometimes, as Stephen goes on, when exhibited by inexpert hands, its compounds are mortal. In doses so small they can hardly be conceived. So, you know nothing, asks Jack, of what has been going forward. Brother, how tedious you can be on occasion. <laughs> and it's one of these great extended cross-purposes conversations. Jack's really wanting to talk about Mercury, the planet. Stephen really wants to talk about the blue pill because he's getting into what's on his mind right now with Martin dosing himself. Now, the, the, the blue pill, that was a real thing. I mean, I think we've heard about, about the blue pill in general as a cure that Stephen uses. But Mike, this was actually a form of mercury treatment, right? It was. It was a mercury-based pill used to treat syphilis, as, as we know with Martin, but also used as a laxative, hence Stephen's reference to you portly men. <laughs> Where would you be without your blue pill here? Uh, uh, you know, I just want to shout out in, uh, to Carrie Webb in Australia. You know, Carrie Webb had meticulously for years kept up Matron's Medicine. You know, and perhaps we can put the link out to that on social media here. Uh, with all these references. So if you're interested in the medical terminology in the canon, you know, Carrie's done a fabulous job of putting them all in one place on the web for us. Uh, oh, and, you know, kind of, I think one of the original members of the gun room from a long time back and pulling these things together here. Oh, great. Well, thank you, Carrie. It's great. Now, uh, Mike, uh, by the way, this, um, this conversation reminded me a bit of Abbott and Costello, the old who's on first sketch. These two guys continuing to misunderstand each other. And you expect right from the beginning that they're sort of enjoying it or enjoying misunderstanding each other, but also getting exasperated with each other. Now, we pick up this conversation between Jack and Stephen. I did hear, says Stephen, I did hear some cries of Jolly Rogers, Jolly Rogers, we shall Roger them. But in parenthesis, Jack, tell me about this word Roger. I have often heard it aboard and can make out no clear nautical signification. Oh, says Jack, who's obviously bearing in mind the famous character Roger the Cabin Boy from the cartoon series Captain Pugwash many years ago. Oh, he says, it is no sea term. They use it ashore much more than we do. A low, cant expression, meaning to swive or couple with. Stephen considered for a moment and then said, so Roger joins Bugger, and that even coarser word, they are all used in defiance and contempt as though to an enemy, which seems to show a curious light on the lover's subjacent emotions. Conquest, rape, subjugation. 
have women a private language of the same nature, I wonder? And Mike, this this kind of conversation joking about a crude joke turns on a sixpence here, and we're into something much more serious. Yeah, I, you know, I, I really wonder, like you say, it goes from funny to sublime. And, you know, do women have a private language of a similar nature? You know, so, you know, Rachel, Ava, Karen, you know, some of our, our listeners out there. And I wonder, are there any journals or diaries or books that might lend insight into Stephen's question here? But the question itself turns on this word as well, interestingly. And I don't I don't know if O'Brien was, you know, aware of this, but this swive that we talked about up here, you know, this is is archaic and, and a little bit humorous sometimes. Yeah. It means to have sexual intercourse with. It comes from an old English word. Swifen, which means to move along a course or to sweep. So, you know, all, all of a sudden we've got a little buried nautical humor reference here. But swive is found, you know, as far back as, as the Canterbury Tales, you know, this idea about, you know, having sex. But it's got an engram peak of 1806, but then also peaks again later, like in 1959 and 2012. And I, I couldn't help. I thought swive. I've never, never heard of this word. Um, why the later engram peaks? And interestingly, the famous researcher, uh, sex researcher, John Money of Johns Hopkins, picked the terms to quim, which is the female version, to swive the male version, as the only examples he could find of what he called linguistic and coital parity between males and females in the English language. Wow. Fascinating. You know, with, with many other species, you know, there are terms for kind of the female's active role in, in intercourse, but not for people. So, you know, he says that this in, are talking about men, you know, men are always active in sex in the words relating to the Sexual Intercourse Act. Women are always passive. You know, it's kind of like he's taking, she's giving here. And, you know, money picked this out. And hence, a lot of people kind of picked up on that term there. Interestingly, Later, um, a, a playwright named Ella Hickson writes a play called Swive, and then in parentheses, Elizabeth, mm. um, which you know, if, if you read about that play, it says, shines a light on the ways and means by which women in power negotiate patriarchal pressure in order to get their way. Wow. Ah. Now, this comes well after O'Brien's use of the term, but it's clear to me he's, he's on to something here. Certainly a theme, this agency theme uh, that we have here, uh, the role of sexuality into it. I mean, we've kind of flown right on from Clarissa Oaks into it here. So I think not, a, you know, not an accidental drop at all. No, absolutely right. Well, Mike, there's a lot for us to think about there and a lot that carries on in this conversation back and forth with some of the kind of comical terms that people use for sexual intercourse. Um, before we get too carried away, let's just give ourselves a moment to step away and have a quick cold shower and, uh, and maybe have a refreshing cup of something calming. And we'll be right back, ladies and gentlemen, after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. Hope everybody's cooled off here and we're going to rejoin Jack and Stephen in their conversation. 
Jack tells Stephen, you know, he wanted to know what's afoot. Well, they're cracking on to find the Elastor, a French privateer wearing the Jolly Roger, which Jack explains to Stephen means not just that she's a pirate, which means strike and lie too, or we shall kill every man and boy aboard. We ask no quarter, we give no quarter. Mm. So, you know, very serious potential prize also very serious potential enemy here as you said ian you know with probably matching guns to the surprise here now jack having examined the whalers charts and and the course that they've taken listen to the people that they talk to there he's pretty sure he knows where this pirate is lying in wait to to pick up this liverpool bound ship and as they talk stephen and jack All of a sudden, the lightning and the thunder and the rain starts with an enormous sound. So just as Jack had told Stephen, you know, you don't need to use that water yet because you're going to have plenty of rainwater tonight. Jack tells Stephen he now has plenty of water to wash his patient's clothes. Well, Mm. Stephen heads back to the sick berth to start taking care of this, but uh, he's not at all pleased at what he finds. No, he's not. Martin is still looking like he's in really bad shape. Stephen sees his deep sunk eyes, sees the bony outline of his head and orders him back to bed. He says, you're not fit to be up. And Stephen goes to check on Martin in the gun room, finds him there in an almost comatose sleep, carries him to the empty midshipman's berth over on the quieter larboard side. And as they undress and bathe Martin, Stephen and Padine are stunned to see these recent, really badly exacerbated sores all over Martin's body. And Padine wonders to Stephen if it's leprosy, because that's the kind of thing that he's encountered uh, back in Ireland that might explain these terrible sores. And Stephen says it's not. It's cruel salt on sensitive skin and coupled with an overall weakened physical state. And Stephen reflects just to himself, salt and worse on a sensitive mind, an unhappy mind. And there's this very tender bit of care given by Padine and Stephen as they wash Nathaniel Martin, apply some ointment to all of these sores and wrap him in a clean, salt-free sheet. And Stephen sits with Martin the whole night, sponging him, examining him for any most obvious direct signs of any kind of venereal disease, finding nothing of the kind. And Martin clearly believes himself to be poxed, but even the power of the mind over the body doesn't account for the severity of these sores. So Stephen's determining here that Martin's got these salt sores, but salt alone isn't enough to explain them. And the only thing that Stephen has seen anything like Martin's condition was in the case of a man whose wife had been poisoning him. Mm. And listening to the storm, listening to the ship sounds through the nights, Stephen remembers that this cabin where they were now was Clarissa's cabin. And O'Brien recounts for us the impact that Clarissa had had joining the officers, pointing out that Stephen had been the only member of the gunroom mess that Mr. Oakes wasn't jealous of. The only member deeply attached to Clarissa as a person rather than a means to an end, and the only one who could have taken her affection away from Oakes. So Stephen knew that Clarissa had been desirable, and as an ordinary sensuous man in this respect, yet in his view, Amorous conversation was significant only if the desire and the liking were shared. And by the way, that's a perspective that Stephen had about dalliances of that kind way back when he was dealing with Laura Fielding uh, in Malta in Treason's Harlow several books ago. And the text goes on here. In their early acquaintance, it had become clear to him 
that physical lovemaking had been meaningless to Clarissa, an act of not the slightest consequence, and she took not the least pleasure in it. And although out of good nature or a wish to be liked, she might gratify a lover, it might be said that she was chastely unchaste. Wow. So this is a reminder of the woman with whom Martin is torturing himself over having had some kind of imagined or half consummated connection with Clarissa here. Right. Now, Stephen had sent Clarissa away to stay with Diana along with Mr. Oakes when he returned to the sea. Stephen had admired the courage of Clarissa and how she'd borne up under a really appalling early life. And we heard the story of that in the previous book. He knew that she had a certain ferocity, but this didn't affect Stephen's esteem for her. And he really hopes that she and Diana are going to be friends. He remembers, as he reflects on this, that his Stephen's house now contains Bridget, his daughter, and Clarissa. And Clarissa dislikes children, but thinks that unless Bridget is exceptionally disagreeable, which he can't imagine, Clarissa might be willing to make an exception. So it's a really nice little reflective uh, reorientation of us in the plot here, in between Stephen noticing and beginning to think about what's happening with Nathaniel Martin and us resuming the story back up on deck of what's happening with the chase. Right. Well, on deck in the morning, Jack learns that they've lost the Franklin during the night. So through the bad weather, you know, they, they can't see her anymore. And without her, his sweep is not going to be nearly as effective. You know, he wants the, the two of them to be you know, far enough apart and looking all over the ocean to be able to find this pirate. And more importantly, Jack really wants to bring a wholly decisive force into battle with the Alastor. You know, he wants the Franklin with him so that he's not risking his people or his ship with this pirate here. Yeah. Now, with the limited visibility and the wind right aft at the end of the night and the following sea making it difficult to know how fast you're going, he realizes Tom may well have slipped away forward accidentally because uh-huh. you know, he, couldn't, he couldn't know how fast he was going. And, and that's the one point of sailing that Tom's on the Franklin you know, would actually go faster than the surprise. Well, the murk surrounding them, the black squall in the distance makes it difficult to see even as the as the day dawns the light comes jack goes down for coffee he goes past all his crew members you know the ones with long hair have it all down you know washing the salt out of it and they're a bit of a sight you know with these long long hair all unfurled all you know wet and laying on these uh, crew members he's summoned by an officer reporting potential gunfire the sound had come from the dark starboard side of the ship, and, mm. it, and it may well be lightning. They're just not sure. And every man on the deck, regardless of what he d- is doing, turns his face and looks, you know, peering into this darkness. Lightning crisscrosses the sky. And, and Jack's kind of thinking, well, you know, it might not have been anything, but he makes sure everything is prepared in case they actually do go into action. So they sail into that darkness and, and are hit with this blinding rain. And the rain and the wind eventually start to diminish as they sail out into the sunrise. And immediately the lookout cries, two sail of ships on the starboard bow. And they're already hole up. So they're that close to them as they come out of the darkness and can see. It's indeed the four-masted Alastor with its black flag, and it's grappled tight to the Franklin. Jack calls all hands, sets all the sail she can carry, and races down towards them. 
you know, they can see the Franklins resisting the Elastor's attempt to cast off. And Jack thinks to himself, you know, I know Tom will hold on for the 10 minutes it'll take us to get there, even if he has to do it with his teeth. And then, you know, as as my pulse quickens and my heart stirs, they beat to quarters. Yeah, Mike, and yours is not the only one. There's the, the thunder of the drum, there's the piping, the cries down the hatchways, we have the guns running out. But before we get into all of that, this noise wakes Martin. And it's really touching that just at that moment that we're about to go, oh, thank, thank heavens we can get away from all this interpersonal drama and tension and we can get into some action. We are switched to the point of view of Martin, who was woken up in his midshipman's berth, the former Clarissa's cabin, to hear the noise of this coming action. He thanks God for Maturin. He had thought he was dead and in hell all night. Looking around, he repeats, oh, this terrible room, meaning that he's in Clarissa's room. Martin's pulse then speeds up just like ours does, but his is with agitation, not with anticipation. He asks Maturin to forgive his trespasses to him. Last little echo of the old version of the Lord's Prayer there. And Reed comes in, relaying a message from Jack that there will soon be some broken omelettes, meaning some casualties when the surprise engages the heavy pirate. And Stephen says, okay, I'll go to the, uh, uh, the, the, st- the station soon. And Martin begs him to bring him. He says he can't stand to be left in this room. And now we get to the heart of this really touching confessional scene between Stephen Maturin and Nathaniel Martin. I hate and dread it, says Martin. I could not bring myself to pass by its door even. This is where Mrs. Oaks... Ugh, the wages of sin is death. I am rotting here in this life while in the next... Christe eleison. Christ have mercy. And Stephen replies, Kyrie eleison. Lord have mercy. To the Catholic rite. But listen, Nathaniel, with you, says Stephen. You are not rotting, as the seaman put it. Not at all. These are salt sores. They are no more, unless you have taken some improper physic. In this ship, you could not have contracted any infection of that kind. There has been no source of infection, whether by kissing, toying, drinking in the same cup or otherwise, none whatsoever. I state this as a physician. And this is a really fantastic moment. Stephen giving Nathaniel Martin this unbelievable lift of, you know, of of just grace here. He's saying, my friend, it's okay. You don't have to torture yourself anymore. You are whole in the way that you thought that you would never be. And Martin's been a complete dick, hasn't he, really, to Stephen? He's been such a selfish, conceited, hypocritical, self-regarding idiot. And Stephen, still being the friend that he is, has said, it's okay. I've got you here. And we've got to ask why. What what do you think is going on here, Mike? How, How come the potentially quite irascible, the potentially quite kind of judgmental Stephen Maturin, why does he go all gooey on Nathaniel Martin here? You know, uh, for me, and this, this boy, this, this, this scene really brought the, uh, the moisture to my eyes here. Cause like yeah. you said, this, this gift of grace, well, one, you know, now Martin is officially Stephen's patient and this is the way Stephen treats his patients. Doesn't matter yeah. if they're enemies, doesn't matter who they are. But I think two, you know, because Stephen as a friend is worth, an infinite number uh, times his weight in gold. I mean, he's ah, yes. just my God, you know, Stephen, you know, as you say, as irascible as he could be and, and peculiar, if he's your friend, man, you've got it. So, you know, I just cheered when I heard this passage, I cheered, you know, kind of wiped it my eyes here, you know, the splendors yeah. and joys of having a good friend. Amen. Oh, wow. And 
I'll, I'll give even more credit to Stephen. Maybe because he's quite self-examining here, he can think of occasions when he's been a bit of a dick to other people and has needed, you know, or needed the value of unconditional love from from, his, from friends of his own. So either way, and any way up, I'm loving this scene. I'm loving that this means that maybe we're going to get Nathaniel Martin back because he's Man. been an important secondary character now, and for all he's been he's behaving a little bit oddly, you know, deep down I think we have some regard for him, and we know that the crew have a regard for him. Even Jack is really, really willing to work hard to cultivate what would not be a natural, easygoing friendship for Jack. So I'm really bl- glad that we've got him back and that he's not just going to be doomed to self-destruction here, as, at least yeah. as far as it seems for right now. So true. Well... From high aloft, Jack sees some of the Elaster's men have boarded the Franklin's waist, while some of the Franklin's have invaded the Elaster's forecastle. Other Franklin's are preventing the Elaster's from casting off, and you know, Jack sees these bearded Sethians throwing Frenchmen off the lashed bowsprits. Some pirates are trying to turn the Franklin's forward carronade aft, but a mob of their own men and musket fire from their own ship is hindering them. Well, then, you know, they kind of lose control of the carronade. It's rolling across the deck out of control. Jack runs his chasers out. You know, he orders them out, drops to the deck, runs back, and helps to aim with bonded. And they fire twice. You know, Brian writes, both shots fulfilled their only function, piercing the foretopsail they were aimed at, dismaying the Elasters. Few ships could fire so clean and encouraging the Franklins whose cheer could now be heard, though faint and thin. So, boy, you know, thank goodness we're, we're on the scene. You know, maybe we're starting to turn the tide of battle a little bit with these two shots. But, yeah. again, not everybody's delighted by these shots. No, very true. The two shots throw Martin back into a delirium. So what was could have been a moment of healing isn't quite there for us yet. Stephen gets Padine to sit with Martin, fetches his fittest patient also from the sick berth to care for Martin, sends Padine off now and doses Martin with laudanum, telling the other patient to soothe Martin if he wakes. Meanwhile, up on deck, Jack has rallied the troops. This is the action that we hoped we were going to get into before Patrick O'Brien so thoughtfully distracted us with all his deep emotional goings on. He prepares them for what you might call a kind of Nelson's Bridge. He's going to go across the deck of the Alastor um, over onto the Franklin there to defeat the pirates, we, we hope. Um, he tells the crew where the Franklins are, where the enemy are, and invites them to come with him. He clears the enemy's waist. Uh, to, he says he's going to clear the enemy's waist and carry on to relieve Captain Pullings and stop the Alastors from, as he calls it, turning awkward with their cannon, meaning the Franklin's cannon. None of you can go wrong, he says, if you knock an enemy on the head. And by the way, Mike, this, this is a really great paraphrase. Uh, all of you Nelson scholars out there will might remember that this was a phrase used by Nelson in the memorandum that he wrote to his captains on the eve of the Battle of Trafalgar, where he wrote, no captain can do very wrong if he places his ship alongside that of an enemy. So not for the first, and I'm sure not for the last time, Jack Aubrey is coming at the Nelson. Uh, nobody can do very wrong if you knock an enemy on the head. And the crew are looking savage, as, as you said, Mike, with their wild hair, and they cheer Jack on. Jack brings a surprise in, leaps across to the Alastor's deck, crying, follow me. The Alastor's charge him with this great, furious fighting spirit. One shoots Jack's hat off his head, scoring his skull, while another brings him down with a long pike. And Mike, this is, this is a moment where we're like, <gasps> Aubrey's down. Right. Oh, my gosh. 
all breathed out and we don't get even time to reflect on this nobody responds we're just kind of still in the melee of the battle here awkward davis with white spittle on his lips shrieks the captain's down cuts the pikesman's leg out from under him and bond and splits the pikeman's head we hear no more about what's happened to jack aubrey as the franklins come howling down and take the alastors in the flank it's a tight packed melee we have these cruel blows we have pistols touching the enemy faces the kind of close quarters fighting that o'brien has described for us a few times before uh, he really takes us right up close and personal with the guys fighting the battle surging backwards and forwards they're trampling over bodies living and dead until the franklin's carronade is finally misfired and misaimed it's killing many of the people that it had meant to help the remaining alastors flood back to their own ship they're cut down from behind by Tom's men, and meanwhile the surprises shatter them in front and from the sides. The Franklins and surprises had all heard the cry, as the text says. The captain's down! They've got the captain! Now, now we get some wider reaction to the injury to Captain Albury, and their fighting reached an extraordinary degree of ferocity. Some Alastors were broken men. They were trying to escape below and were hunted down and killed as silence fell over the ships. And Mike, if, if there was ever going to be uh, an, an Amazon or Apple TV or HBO or Netflix remake of this series, this is going to be one of those moments. Isn't it? We can really imagine this. The battle falls silent. And as the text says, the silent ships creaking together on the dying sea and the flapping of empty sails. And Mike, what does this silence signify? What's happened with Captain Aubrey? Is he, is he done for? Right. I mean, I'm like, hold on a minute. You know, right. What? You know, I, what? Where is Jack? As you say, we haven't heard anything about him. And I'm thinking, if, you know, if I didn't know the name of the series and how many more books are on my bookshelf, <laughs> I would be worried here. I, mean, I was worried nonetheless here. And O'Brien in classic style still doesn't tell us. He goes <laughs> on to tell us, you know, as I'm worried about these you know, silent ships and the dying sea and empty sails that a dozen black slaves are found down in the Alastor's Orlop and a few wretched rouge-scented boys, and they're all put to work throwing the dead overboard. Mm. And I'm like, no! And O'Brien writes, long before they reached his part of the deck, Jack Aubrey heaved himself up from beneath three bodies and one desperately wounded man. Then we have Jack saying, it was as bloody a little set to as ever I've seen, he said to Pulling, sitting by him on the combing, trying to staunch the flow from his wound and dabbing at his bloody eye. How are you, Tom? He asked again. And how's the ship? <laughs> End of <laughs> chapter five. Whoa! So, if, if any of you have got a cat called Aubrey, he's just used one of his nine lives there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Wow, great chapter, right? And just when we were thinking maybe this is going to be another one of those deep interpersonal drama, darkness, behavioral, psycho type novels. Wow, some of the most intense action we've had. Just just as as Jack Aubrey saying the thing that's on our mind, that was as as intense of a dust up as we've had for our primary characters here for quite quite a while. Yeah, I, I I just loved how you know we lost Jack at that beginning of the battle. We didn't hear from him or about him for the rest of the battle. You know, there's no bond in helping him up. There's no you know Jack getting up and rallying the troop. You know, this is this is kind of you know almost a new incarnation of Lucky Jack to me, and it it reminds me 
of that scene earlier in the canon when Pullings got his great wound and Jack stepped in to save him. But we don't know till the fight was over, you know, whether Pullings lived or died. What happened? So, you know, I think, you know, this is one of uh, O'Brien's greatest hits that he's, you know, put to really good use here once again. Yeah. And and also in, in a lesser author with a more traditional kind of potboiler approach to writing action you'd have aubrey springing to his feet and you know grabbing a cutlass from the hand of a dead opponent and then and, and, and striking the final decisive blow and saying follow me boys but actually the the his decisive action doesn't have any effect on the outcome of the battle the outcome of the battle is determined by the men that he's led and trained and directed up to this point and his close close allies like tom pullings um but he doesn't get to be the hero having the decisive touch on the battle. He gets them to that point, and then we just have to worry and wait and watch. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Boy, I'm so glad, you know, with this development between Martin and Stephen. You know, I was really kind of, um, and I was really getting to dislike Martin a great deal. And I felt like, boy, we've had these books and books of this friendship. And, you know, almost to the point of, of kind of competing with Jack and Steven's friendship, at least in Jack's mind at times. And then it was such a complete falling out. And I'm sure Steven was glad to you know make that change from just friend to physician so we could finally intercede and, and attempt to set Martin to rights. But, you know, it seems like there's a number of breadcrumbs suggesting mercury poisoning. Oh, so, yeah. you know, Martin may not be out of the woods yet here. And, and I wonder, as, as you said, again, I, I'd like to think their friendship is, but I wonder if it is. Yeah, because Martin's still very much attached to the idea of these livings, these, these properties that he now has rights to back in the UK. He might think that he's burned a lot of bridges in his connection with the Navy and in his connection with the other surprises as well. Ah, there's a lot going on, but really not that much has been resolved yet. We've got some distractions taken care of, like maybe Martin's physical condition, maybe not. Uh, maybe we're now clear to proceed on the secret mission to Peru. The wind is still blowing east-southeast. Maybe what we've got to do is sell the prizes and get ashore. Maybe all Jack Aubrey's got to do is just, you know, a- a- apply a few stitches and a bit of smelling ointment and-, and it's all going to be okay. But by the way, I love the fact that we got some genuine jeopardy for Jack Aubrey here. Like, it's a fair criticism of the books up to this point that you might say, well, it's obvious that Stephen and Jack are kind of protected. But O'Brien did a really good job in going as far as he could in reversing that expectation that we've got that the principal characters are golden and, and free from danger here. So is, is, is that it? Is Jack or Stephen going to face any more mortal danger or are they going to career downhill in the second half of the book towards glory and revolution in Peru? And I think there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to just a little more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. great news they nudge and grin at each other this means a prize in the offing um sorry (laughs) 
trying to turn this thing off and it's just making more noise. There you go, Sam. 